0: Learning about and acting on toxins, environmental degradation, and other hard topics requires the capacity to do so without letting it drag you down. It can be pretty easy to sink into fear and despair, feeling like it's just too big for you to handle. But we are needed, and we can make a difference. So we need the capacity to tackle hard things and hard conversations. I was lucky enough to start to build this capacity with support from Lindsay Coulter when I worked with her in the David Suzuki Foundation's Queen of Green coaching program. I still have a fair bit to go in this avenue, and I invited her to chat with me to partially help remind me to build this capacity, but mostly to help you build capacity too. Lindsay Coulter is a dedicated mother of two, naturalist, community catalyst, soul activist, mentor, writer, and horse lover in Victoria, British Columbia. She seeks to inspire others to claim sane leadership and find better ways to be in this world together. She believes in creating good human society wherever we are, whenever we can, with the people and resources available to us right now. Her expertise is as a green living expert for more than a decade as former David Suzuki's Queen of Green. A leader, mentor, facilitator, community catalyst, compassion cultivator, soul activist, and courageous conversation starter. Her... Handles on Instagram and Facebook are at Sane Action. She's also the Director of Communications, Culture, and Community of Epic Learning Center, a forest and nature school in Victoria, BC. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground, including what it means to take sane action, simple ways to build community and why it's so essential, how we can reconnect to nature in an increasingly disconnected world, eco-grief and building the capacity to cope, how to show up on social media, having conversations with people who aren't on board, hope and fear in chaotic times, and more. This conversation is thought-provoking, envelope-pushing, and humbling. I encourage you to listen with an open mind, and more than once. There is so much goodness in here. I know I will come back to it again and again, because at different times, it will bring up different aha moments. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Missing Pillar of Health podcast, the show that tackles the often misunderstood and underestimated topics related to toxins and their impact on our health and well-being. I'm your host, environmental engineer, mom of two, and founder of Green at Home, Emma Roman. My mission is to help you reduce toxins in your life without fear, judgment, or shame, so you can be more informed and empowered to take action on issues that matter to your health. The research is clear that toxic chemicals found in the products we use, food we eat, water we drink, and air we breathe are contributing to the rise of chronic illness, allergies, infertility, autoimmune disease, and more. The good news is you can reduce your exposure without having to drastically change your lifestyle, and I'm here to show you how. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. I believe addressing toxins is a critical step towards creating healthier and happier families, communities, and ultimately a better planet. And that starts right here, right now. Let's dive into today's show. Hi, Lindsay. So great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. Before we dive in, can you share a little bit about
1: you? My name is Lindsay Coulter, and I'm on the West Coast and had a career at the David Suzuki Foundation for over 14 years up until recently, and I've always just been a storyteller, loved writing, more recently really thrived in sort of mentoring. I consider myself a community catalyst, a soul activist, and a courageous conversation starter, and I love wildlife, nature, like a naturalist, and... um, definitely a horse lover as well.
0: Those are such good descriptors for you. We met first online and then I joined the Queen of Green coaching program that you were Mm. running for a while and you opened my eyes to a whole new way of Mm. having conversations with people and just a different way of thinking about some pretty big Mm. problems in the world. And (laughs) so I'm thrilled to be able to be back chatting with you. It's been a little while since we've connected like this. And now you are working on various projects. You're involved in the Forest School. And I'd love to start with your social media handle, actually, Mm. um, which is Sane Action. Can you share a little bit about what SANE Action
1: means to you? Yeah, I I think we must have met in 2013 or 2014. It was a while ago, yeah. Yeah, we've been building community and ever since. SANE Action is, yeah, an Instagram handle and a Facebook page that I've had going for a little while. And I'll be honest, I really don't like social media (laughs) for a lot of reasons. (laughs) I kind of dread Going there, my next job or jobs will be doing less social media. I do find it swimming with sharks. That's an accurate, accurate description. <laughs> and it was such a big part of my job. And I do get f- fulfilling things from it as well. But sane action really stems from work and training I've been doing to be a warrior for the human spirit. And I've been in uh, training with Margaret Wheatley out of the US, a philosopher, writer, and um, since 2015. And one of the terms that came out of sort of what we were creating there, which is like in its simplest form, I could say what warrior ship means is that we create a good human society wherever we are, whenever we can, with the people and resources available to us now in this moment. And Meg started talking about it in her book, So Far From Home, I believe she talks about creating islands of sanity. And I've been trying to kind of unpack of what that means. And it's really about working at the local level and exploring things that you can't not do. So the actions you take and the things that you participate in, the way you serve, you don't do it for applause. You may never get recognized. No one may ever notice. Your name may not be tied to anything and you would do it anyways. And you may not get money for it. You probably don't get money for it and you would do it anyways. So that's where sane action comes is looking at yeah, how to act in a discerning with clear seeing and wise ways. And if it sounds a little bit Buddhist, it is also very much so grounded in the Shambhala, like a prophecy about, yeah, people rising to this challenge of being compassionate presences when chaos hits. So there were a lot of
0: big ideas and big thinking concepts in there. How does this apply to our day to day life what would be some examples
1: yeah in its most simplest form no matter what situation you find yourself in and this could be with work with your partner with your communities is you're always looking to see what does this situation need not what do i need it's okay to it's okay to journal and and contemplate that as well but as far as what you act on how you respond it's this understanding that the world is neutral so the world doesn't really care If you believe, you know, if you're for or against climate change or what you think about COVID or masks or not, like the world really doesn't care there's a neutral stance. What your responsibility is, is to know how you're going to respond and react in these situations. So one really, a really simple example is in my neighborhood, I moved to my neighborhood from Vancouver to Victoria about four years ago. And one of my core values is connection, integrity and connection. I really like people. I like to build relationships and yeah, nurture community and, and help each other. At, like needing your neighbors more is a really big part of a belief I have and When I came into the neighborhood, like, our kids play outside all the time. People come and go from, like, you never know how many kids are in your backyard on a given day, and neighbors offer to take your kids to the beach or to the park and help you out when you have a newborn, and, like, it's amazing. And what I started to do was, there's about, I don't know, 50 houses in my neighborhood, like, we're on a dead-end loop. And every time a new neighbor moved in, I decided I would make, like, a welcome basket, like an old school, someone shows up at your front door with an apple pie kind of thing. And I tried to build this into the culture, like the social fabric or social capital of our neighborhood. And so what I did was I love to coordinate and organize. I usually just need people to organize and coordinate. And what I asked was for the neighbors I had emails for and what I would see on the street, I'd say, hey, you know, address 2423. There's someone new moving in. Would you like to contribute to a welcome basket? It could be homemade jam. It could be people gave a bottle of wine. It could be tea, like store-bought things, homemade things, something from your garden, or depending on the time of year. And I'll collect things, you know, Monday, 5 o'clock, drop it at my front stoop. I'll put it in a basket. Please include a note about, you know, who you are and why you love living here. What's the best part about our neighborhood or what you enjoy the most or maybe some secret trail or, or tree or the best park or something. And what I noticed in that was people were more than willing to help out. Nobody really wanted to coordinate it and be the organizer and like make it all happen, which I was fine to do, but people were more than happy to drop things off. And what it does is it took people out of their individual selves as well. So, you know, we have a very str- we identify very strongly with our opinions and our views, and we're looking for more places to shout those things, which is creating a lot of aggression in the world. And I remember having a neighbor come over and she's like, I'm sorry, I'm just dropping off this bottle of wine. I'm sorry, I can't, you know, talk longer. And I didn't do it earlier. My husband's in surgery and he's been in hospital. Now he has an infection and things have gone sideways and I've just been preoccupied. And she still had time to think about Someone else and do this little gesture was so cool. And I had more neighbors like that were like, We don't have a lot of money right now. Would some applesauce from our trees help out? And that's all I've got to offer. And I was like, Amazing. And then people started to offer, Can I be the one to drop off the basket? And I was like, Sure, it doesn't have to be me. Why don't you go meet and say hello, introduce, you know, on behalf of the neighborhood? And then what happened was when you would go to the front doors of these, you know, strangers, They were so gracious and so appreciative and so blown away. And then I'd let them know about all the other things. Like we typically take our kayaks down to the beach for picnics in the summer, or I also run the restoration in my local forest. So if you want to participate in that, I'll take your email. And people were just happy to be noticed and feel seen and included and and excited that they were going to be part of something. And what that, when you build the social fabric that way, you're creating social cohesion, which we know means that there is less crime in your neighborhood there is less break and enters there is more help it's safer for kids to be outside and play outside when people are watching your house people are watching who's coming and going from your driveway people are noticing when a kid is struggling or falls off their bike on the side of the road or more willing to help because they know the name of that child or they know which house they belong to and same with pets and animals and all these things and you start to build that fabric so that's like just a really simple simple thing That has huge consequences in a positive way.
0: Yeah, Yeah, the ripple effect of such a really simple action. It takes a lot Mm -hmm. to coordinate that number of people getting things together, but the impact is huge. And it, it extends well beyond each individual household, like you said. And I think in so many ways, neighborhoods have shifted away from that. Mm -hmm. And I think that in and of itself is kind of a great mission for people to have. I know in the town that I moved to before COVID, it's now exploded and there are so many people moving out of Mm -hmm, cities and into smaller towns. So if anybody else is in a similar boat and you're finding that a lot of people are moving into your area, this is a perfect way to take some action and start shifting how we engage in our communities. And I think that at the end of the day is what it's all about.
1: And if you can picture with your green at home work, we do lots of advocacy, right? You and I in our our histories have done lots of advocacy on reducing our exposure to toxics, like at the neighborhood level, at the household level. So how easy can it be to talk to your neighbor about the toxin? toxic scents coming from their dryer vent if you've never met them, if you don't even know their name, if you haven't actually had a positive conversation or any gesture of neighborly goodness, how are you going to talk to them about their fence being on your property or the pesticides they spray or that they park on your native plant garden? I mean, you (laughs) these things will not go well and we all have them. We all have to have these difficult conversations at times that can be really attached to our values. And if you actually don't know who your neighbors are and what they stand for, or you haven't made an effort to get to know your community. Also, when you're down and out and you have a flood in your basement, or you need last minute childcare because your appointment went long, like who are you going to phone when you think you left the burner on? And why shouldn't a neighbor have a spare key to your house or something like that for like absolute emergencies? It's harder to call on people and to ask and to be the highest vibration in the room when there is something difficult that needs to be talked about when you have no baseline for that human being and and they of you. So that's not my hidden agenda. However, it does make it so much easier to see each other, of course, as human beings and not just that house on the corner that has the loud motorcycle that wakes me up at 7 a.m. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So. And I think our ability or what I see often is our inability to have hard conversations is also bringing on more problems too, because the Mm -hmm. problems just keep piling up because we're not able to actually address them in a way that is going to get us to the point of where we're trying to go and you're right. If we've if our first interaction is complaining to somebody mm-hmm. or talking about problems, it's a lot harder to go with that conversation. The number of times that people have in my community asked, like, how do we broach this conversation about mm-hmm. prior events and whatnot? It's often because
1: they have never had a conversation with that person before. We are very unskilled at conversations that matter, or I call them courageous conversations. They don't have to mean that you're sharing your deepest, darkest, and you're going to your having a dark night of the soul with the person you rarely see across the back fence. It's not about that. But as far as being Skilled in getting your pride out of the way, knowing that the outcome may even have unintended consequences and the op, you might achieve the opposite of what you set out to do, but having some skillfulness in knowing what does this situation need. I mean, sometimes the situation might need, I just have to listen, or like this person needs a hug. And yeah, I'm pissed off and I'm upset and I want to get to my point. And maybe that's not the time, or maybe that's actually not the conversation or the way that you need to show up in that moment. And maybe it's going to take a little bit, a little bit longer, but these are all things that really, yeah, that really can help out. I mean, I almost go around, I have young kids in my neighborhood and I've said to all my neighbors, even the ones without, especially the ones, honestly, without kids, I've said, if you ever see the children, my children, then they're in on the street or they're leaving their bikes on your property or they're digging in your soil or something like Please speak to them with kindness and give them a gentle direction and let me know. Like I would rather, you know, and like if you need to talk to an adult, come and let me know what can be rectified or what's coming up for you before you scream at the kids or write us off as not being good neighbors or something. Like all these things are sort of, there's workarounds and things are workable. And maybe that was a bit of a mistake in a way, because now all the neighbors come to me when any of the children, (laughs) and, and we must have about one day I counted, there's 25 kids under 12 in oh wow! My neighborhood, like there's a lot of kids, and so I get to hear about all the <laughs> misdemeanors that are going on. Uh, but then I can report back to the parents or make some community agreements too around the kids. But that's sort of an opening. Is if something is ever tough or you need to talk about it, I I would love to hear. And you know, you you stay approachable and you keep your heart open. And in order to build that confidence and that trust, and then yeah, like you say, when it's When things get hard where you need your neighbors to vote on putting up a stop sign and a crosswalk at the end of your street or whatever, then like it's going to be easier to manifest or create a butterfly way or whatever advocacy you need to do to create that sane, good human society in your little neighborhood. It's going to be much easier when you've got those relationships.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, Perfect kind of grounding for people to have and really pause and think about how you want to have relationships with your community and some simple steps that you can take today, tomorrow, this week, whatever the case might be, to start building those relationships. Mm-hmm. You sent me something in the chats that we were having before hopping on to this interview, and I'd like to read it if that's okay, because I... Quite like it. So you said, we all need to be affected by our world. Emotions are essential to reason. They are part of the human experience and they tell you what to pay attention to. How can we awaken to the suffering of the world or have courage to be in the world if we don't have skills and practices to address emotions? Of course, we must not act from dangerous emotions, you clarify. Luckily, emotions also have hidden intelligence. When you make space for the sadness, defeat, anguish, and joy, there's more room for courage and clarity. Humans need time to reflect, contemplate, listen, and be present. When we can create a stable mind, we do less harm to ourselves, others, and the planet. We must choose love. Toko Pa Turner, is that Mm -hmm. how you pronounce it? Author of Belonging speaks about our need to reconcile belonging to the earth itself, plus the fact that it all hurts so much because we're being torn from what we love, Mother Earth. She says nature is always calling us into greater gestures of bravery. So we talked a little bit about having that kind of time to reflect and how we can be in our community, I find that in the context of how a lot of us are living now, particularly urban kind of career driven families, and then layering in the internet and social media, like you touched on, it adds its own kind of level of emotional intelligence that's needed. How can we live with sane action and reconnecting with nature,
1: given the context of Today's times. When I was working as the Queen of Green and I managed all my social media, I remember it starting to feel very reckless and I felt very responsible posting, continually posting bad news, sad news stories of, yeah, the amount of plastics in the ocean, the number of trees we were losing, caribou, all these types of things about it. the collapse of our environmental, you know, our living world. And I felt very reckless and irresponsible to keep posting those scientifically valid very relevant very important issues without giving because i had nurtured the online community for over a decade without giving them capacities to actually absorb and process the depths of that information when the southern resident whale carried her dead baby two summers ago for for 17 days my then six-year-old said, mom, who cries for the orca? And I said, well, we can. And we just had a really big, and I was so relieved to have someone to cry with about it. And I was trying to figure out what age appropriate yeahness of the tragedy, you know, to share. But he saw it right away, like who cries for the orca? Like if we don't pay attention to what we're losing and sort of reconcile even our role in it, then I think we miss the whole thing and we'll keep doing more damage and creating more environmental violence. And when we don't connect to the self, I've already described a little bit about to one another and to our living planet. So seeing ourselves as separate or in spite of these things is a bit problematic. I also really got passionate about Eco grief. Uh, Again, just this transforming these difficult emotions that we're all having and recognizing when it's despair and recognizing, but actually trying to find some looking to beauty and to awe and experiencing the things that keep showing us how life is carrying on, but having the capacity to. Yeah, and people were really worried about. Me taking people to places that would keep them in a despairing or, you know, down kind of way. (laughs) But there is an arc and there's a process of acknowledging what's hard and what sucks about all of this and then finding out, yeah, your place and your role in it. And part of that is tending to your inner life. We take care of ourselves. And I don't mean like going to the spa or getting a foot massage. I mean like, Looking at meditation and contemplation and journaling, creating a grief altar, like there can be so many things that we practice being with ourselves in the idea that then perhaps we can be with others. And that's why you go inside and you work on those things. But yeah, social media... And that I, it really, it continually asks you and calls you into a place of making your identity known, creating your brand, which then gives you something to protect. It gets you something, it gives you something to fight against or sorry, to fight for, it gets you, gives you something to protect. It gives people illusion that they know who you are. And then when you don't meet their expectations, well, there's hell to pay. <laughs> and it's very, just so very one dimensional. So my little tip about social media, just for anyone is to see. If you can share a lot less, can you keep more for yourself? And then the other thing is to check in with yourself when you're about to post, whether you're about to post, usually it's our opinion or share an article or one of your viewpoints to notice, are you doing it just to shout from the top of a soapbox so people know where you stand? And how will it feel the next morning? Do you get scared about looking at your phone or opening up Facebook or Twitter or whatever platform, Instagram, because of something you've said or done? Like Then you have that sinking feeling after that like... Whatever ruffling of feathers or that people might have misconstrued what you meant or that the context wasn't fully there or you were just having a really bad day. (laughs) And now you're going to have to or not figure out how to reconcile what was said, but that you have that dread of, Oh, I I did send that email. Those have been really powerful lessons for me as I'm crafting and I'm emoting because I'm having an experience and a reaction. As warriors, you don't stop having emotions. There's a quote, I believe it's by Chug M. Trumpa that says, the waves don't stop crashing, you just get up a lot sooner. So hmm. you recognize when you've been triggered, you're recognized when you're feeling hurt or left out or disenfranchised <laughs> or misunderstood, but you go inside to figure out why that is, what pattern do you notice, what do you need, and you don't put it in an email or on a Facebook comment. And that's a very, it's an advanced practice. And yeah, it's a good challenge.
0: It even applies to one-on-one conversations. A big hurdle that many people have in my community Mm. is not seeing eye-to-eye with their partner on some of their green or healthy home strategies. Mm. And I have another episode that I'll link in the show notes where I spoke to a guest about having conversations with others. And you can't have those sorts of conversations when you are still processing and angry and feeling hurt and it's too reactionary at that point. And so I think the rules for engaging one-on-one still apply to the internet. People just feel safer spewing their stuff online because they aren't necessarily face to face. And so again, it goes back to that disconnect, right? The same as we're becoming more disconnected from nature. Social media makes us feel like we're connected, but there is definitely a break in that connection. (laughs) And to your point of the, I liked that visual of the arc of feeling despair or (laughs) overwhelm is a major feeling in people who are starting to become more aware of some environmental issues or thinking about toxics. So when when we're getting to that kind of peak where people have learned that there's a problem, but that's where it can also feel like it's too big for me. It's just too much. How can we move past that without slipping back into Kind of apathy.
1: Well, I mean, you mentioned the word problem. I mean, something collaborating with the enemy. Adam uh, Kahane's book talks about. Oftentimes, we don't even agree what the problem is. You think about in your household about, let's say, you're you're being overrun with plastics, or you're trying not to bring it. Like you and your partner, or you might actually not agree that there's a problem. So so how do you get to a solution? So you think, okay, we can't agree on a solution, but maybe in certain times, you can't even come together on actually what the problem is. And yet there is still a way to find a step. He calls it stretch collaboration, but there is still a way to get to taking the next step. In warriorship, we talk about you're going for direction. You, you don't know necessarily where that's going to go, but you're sort of like the perseverance idea that you keep taking steps forward, you keep pushing that boulder. And so some of that, comes from, even if you think if you've been triggered by a Facebook post or something in the news or whatever, is to ask more questions. So even coming to something with more curiosity. So can you admit that from where you're sitting, you can't see everything? Like, what if that is a possibility? You know, pick an issue, pick a topic. What if you can't actually see everything from where you're sitting? Can you appreciate that? And then Can you come to any of those difficult conversations or queries with asking more questions? So right away when you ask a question about like, tell me more or why do you feel that way or whatever, it right away puts you in a more regulated state. Like your vagus nerve already starts to tune in and you start to relax when you come from a place of curiosity versus I can't wait to make my point if I can just convince them. Even giving advice is really aggressive, an aggressive way to be actually sometimes it's not what you need, even when, and especially when someone asks for advice, (laughs) that can also be very dangerous. Yeah, looking at actually going for direction, and there's places of like, where you need to be fearless, right? Like you and I sitting here right now, we come from a line of survivors. Not a lot of people made it, like it's pretty amazing. So even the people you might be in conflict with, or the issues might have conflicts over, we come from a long line of like, fearless ancestors that and that's a very powerful thing in the context of eco grief to look back at. This is a really good exercise I find for youth, but is to look back at stories and of your ancestors of your past of like how you even got here, because we weren't the first ones to feel this overwhelm or experience tragedy or loss or anything like that. There's been a lot of people before us. And that can be very powerful in realizing, yeah, the sort of lineage that you come from. And then it doesn't. It didn't start, none of this started with you and it's not going to end with you.
0: Can you define eco grief? We've touched on it mm. a few times, but I think it would be good to have a clear understanding of what that is because I I feel like a lot of people are experiencing it, but may never mm. have put
1: a label to it. Yeah, and that, that's a good question. I've And I don't have a a bucket definition. But one thing that I find amusing when I started to look into eco grief or eco despair was the term environmental, I think it was environmental despair, environmental grief, it had been in 2012, a doctor had written about it, and she trademarked the term, oh. <laughs> which I thought was very amusing. So maybe we can't say it. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I say eco grief, because she didn't trademark that. But that was amusing as far as having pride and and protectionist of things was someone decided they needed to own that. And and it can come up as anxiety, too. So everyone processes it different. Some people, yes, are now being able to kind of name that like sinking feeling or that not knowing what to do next or where to go from here. Or I have people in my queen of green community, have people ask, should I have another child or not? These big questions as far as what impact they want to make and or not. And really I think it's just like the sadness, you know, as you read in Tokopa's uh quote there, it's like this hurts so much because we are kin to everything around us. The trees have stories to tell, the rocks have like we're completely interconnected to one another. And also to the earth. So every time, like I say, you read in that news headline about there's four caribou left in Jasper, or there's the whale has carried her baby for 17 days. The reason that feels so yucky and confusing and heartbreaking and maybe makes you angry and despairing is because we are, you. we all come from the same stardust. We are all completely interconnected and we're part of that. So that's why it can be so confusing.
0: And so how can we use that knowledge to move forward instead of... Because in Meg Wheatley's work, there was some a workshop that you gave on hope and fear in chaotic yeah. times, I think it was. And I think we have a hard time dealing with such extremes that we end up stuck and not really knowing if we can make an impact, not knowing how, and also, does it really matter? A lot of people feel kind of insignificant in scheme of things. What's the way forward?
1: Yeah, there's a really great article. It's a PDF you can find by Meg called "Beyond Getting Beyond Hope and Fear. And The thing that we've been exploring and I still exploring since 2015 was about hope being a dangerous sort of primary motivator, because many believe hope and fear are the same different sides of the same coin. So if you have hope, then you're going to have fear that something's not, you know, and if you have hope and attachment to a positive outcome, then you're going to be setting yourself up for disappointment as well. And I mean, even to the degree that you might say, well, I hope I don't get sick. You know, I hope I don't get a cold. The way I try to break that down is like, look, you may or may not get a cold, and you'll figure it out. You're, you'll get through it. You'll do what you always. Do. You'll make your tea. You'll take lots of rest. You'll not go to work. Whatever it needs to do, you'll get through it. And so, in that article, she shares a definition by Vaclav Havel, who led the Velvet Re- Revolution in Czechoslovakia, and he was a poet and an activist. And he said that hope is actually like it's not something you have to have or, or to grasp for, because he said it's actually an attribute we carry. It's not dependent on positive outcomes. So often, I don't know, in, in when I hear in the media or on websites and on activist pages and campaigns, it's all about hoping for this positive outcome is what I often hear. And that often rubs me the wrong way or makes me just really sad because I'm like, what if it doesn't turn out? Or like, can we actually, you know, achieve this? So it, his version was that hope is not dependent on positive outcomes. It's actually direct experience. Like it's something that is already in you. And that you move forward and you take action and you make decisions regardless of how it's going to turn out. You just do it because of this sane action principle. This, what's the next logical step or it's the right thing to do. And you're using, and the reason you can get there. So how do you figure out what's the right, what's right work or wise action is that's why as warriors, we train to be with our mind and to be, to create a stable mind and work on our inner life, because when you can quiet, quiet is the right word, when you can tra- transform your difficult emotions, when you can work with your triggers, when you can work with, like, anger is a very healthy emotion, fear is there to keep you alive. These aren't bad, you know, nothing is bad. And it's just figuring out where you're going to act from. But in meditation, for example, it's a very big foundation of warriorship and so many other things is from there, you get clear seeing. So when you can recognize that what you're doing is just labeling, or that's just pride, or oh, that's my shame coming up, and you're not you judge, you don't judge yourself, nothing is good or bad it just is. So when you can see the quality of isness with things, it just is, it just sucks, or it's just sad. And that's not a good or bad thing. You're not being punished for anything. There's no punishment here. There's no winning side or losing side. Then you can see really clearly. So what I've noticed in years now of working in these deeper practices, everything from Qigong to, like I said, walking meditations, all kinds of meditation, contemplation activities, is I notice things a lot more. I have a lot more perception because I can, block out, I'm not even just talking about Facebook and comments and likes or just like, I'm talking about like the clutter of things and the reverberation of other people's actions and their energy. I can now see through those things or I can perceive and I perceive patterns now much more clearly. I can see things that go beyond how I'm feeling about a situation or what I'm attached to. I can recognize that like, oh, I don't agree right now or that doesn't feel good. And then I can still Look at the bigger picture without discounting my own, but I can just notice, oh, this is me feeling left out right now. Okay, that's interesting. That seems to be a story that keeps coming up every time I get into, okay, well, isn't that fascinating? <laughs> and, and patterns is one that really helps me with clear seeing is because I start to notice like, this is what happens every time, not just in myself, but like in society or in the communities I participate in. And then I just keep asking more questions that bringing that curiosity to whatever it is can really help. And I find it's really supporting a lot of the communities I'm into is asking for one, can we think about this? Do we need an answer? Do we need to actually answer or with my spouse? You know, do we need to actually have to decide on this right now? Why don't we both sleep on it? Can we take a few days? Can we do some more research? Can we just dig into? And sometimes I can think with my husband and I I remember like we're, he's just, I'm scared of failing. I'm like, Oh me too. I'm worried. This is a disaster. What if we make a mistake? And we both had that conversation. He was worried about the same thing. It was coming out differently and it looked like we were divided. And then when we got honest to the place of, I'm just really scared. What if this is the wrong decision? When we named it, then all the options and all the opportunities and everything opened up from there. And of course, we saw that we were sitting beside each other, not across from one another Yes. Uh, on a particular issue. And we both had the same like gut, like, what if we're wrong? And then we just sat in that for a little bit. Humans are very, we do not like discomfort. No, You think of how many times today through a text or email or in a work exchange or a family exchange or even with your children that you get put in a situation where you're like, oh, this feels yuck. I'm really uncomfortable right now. Some people choose to, you know, medicate with, you know, whether it's food or going online or like whatever like, and then you then you'd want to numb that you want to go this feels and that's to the degree talking about eco grief is like, you want to just put that out of your mind or feel like it doesn't hurt so bad. And that's the wrong way to go through life is about being numb about all those things. And and you mentioned apathy is, yeah, I don't see like what the other option is, because what you have to do is look at your feelings, your actions aren't shouldn't be dependent on external circumstances. And when I go when I circling back to my being a good neighbor example is joy comes from working together as good human beings. So then you go back to the like, okay, this is my internal cycle of feeling crappy about my contribution. And like, how cocky are you really to feel that significant about what you personally can or can't do? You need to like take it down a notch and be, think about the things you can be humble about and what you can step into, like what you can serve in that moment. And maybe serving in that moment is just not reacting. Maybe that's like the best thing. Not doing anything. Yeah. Not responding, just taking a breath.
0: Yeah, I think pausing and taking a breath is probably advice most of us can take many times a day in various situations. You've created a manifesto, what you've called Stop Our Profound Disconnection Mm. with the Living World manifesto. And I encourage
1: folks to go check it out. You're kind of dripping it out on your Instagram right now. That's right. When I, when I feel like Instagram might have a purpose in my life, then I make a few more postcards and <laughs> I have to step away from it and then I go back. So yeah, it's a definitely a drip campaign. I don't even know how many there are. There's like over 100. Oh my God, there might be 150 actions, but it's as simple as, you know, walk barefoot or build social capital, like what I describe, or hang a tree swing. And yeah, those are mostly, they're coming out on my Facebook, Sane Action Facebook page and Instagram. And some are really simple and others are like, get to know your fearless ancestors or create a grief altar, those types of things.
0: And some of the themes that we've... Touched on in this conversation, know you'll fail and you're still Mm. all in. Find that place beyond hope and fear and tend to your inner life. I think those are Mm -hmm. kind of three of the core themes that we've talked about a lot in this conversation. And what I love about the way that you're sharing that manifesto is every time I see one of those posts, something that can be acted
1: on, right? It's not going to do everything all at once in that moment. Yeah, that's the idea. And the all in part, the definitely, you know, you try not to doubt yourself, you try to lean into these things in earnest, like you don't need to be trained in every single skill. I think sometimes we think we can't act or say anything or, or bring something to our community or our people without, you know, a course in active listening or whatever. And those are really good too. But when you have direct experiences of things, then it's yours. So you have a direct experience of things, the only guarantee is you're going to get feedback. Okay, because remember, the world is neutral, the world doesn't necessarily care about it's your passion or your goal, but you will get feedback that is guaranteed. That's the only thing that's certain. And, and then you can lean into that. But that experience is now yours. So I'll give you like a quick example. I ran an eco grief workshop about this time last year for some youth at Simon Fraser University. You know, they kind of took my friend that was running it took a chance on me and I collected all did my workshop. And guess what, like it wasn't that well received by everybody. Some people really loved it. And some people didn't like it at all. And it brought up a lot of things for them. And I thought, oh my goodness, should I be doing these anymore? Or do I have to take another five courses and how to do this? What were my, and really, yeah, my mentor Meg said, Lindsay, if you don't do anything, how are you ever going to learn? How are you ever going to, if you don't make mistakes and fail, and if you don't dip your toe into the water. I mean, I think Brene Brown talks about having opinions as sitting from the cheap seats, right? Like if you don't yes. get down in the arena and actually try, anyone can have an opinion of anything. Like who cares? That, that doesn't have it carry any weight to have an opinion, but how do you lead? How do you act on it? How do you learn from it? Yeah. In the smallest of things, just leaning in and not having that self-doubt. And sometimes the doubt is very, has hidden intelligence as well. So if you think... Who am I to do this work? Or who am I to start this neighborhood block party? Or who am I to change the way I'm doing things internally at my office? Who am I? That is sometimes a very good clue that it's exactly what you should be doing. You know, if you have like a little trepidation of like, do I know enough? I'm not the expert. Or what will people think? That can sometimes be a really good clue that you're about to be witness to some magic.
0: I love it. I think that's a great Final thought to end Mm -hmm. on, I think this might be an episode that you're going to want to listen to more than once, come back (laughs) to it at different times, because I think with these sorts of conversations, different... Lessons and different thoughts will show up in different ways. So thank you very Mm -hmm. much, Lindsay, for being here and sharing what you've learned on your journey with us. I really appreciate it. Where can people go to learn more from you?
1: You're welcome, Emma. Sane Action on Instagram and on Facebook is sort of where I lurk from time to time, like I say. And I'm always just finding other places to land this content. So yeah, watch for, you know, there I'll post when I get more content live that I'm sharing in in other avenues. And that's probably the best pace right now. And when I have more workshops or I'm working with other partners, I'll post events and could be Zoom meetings. It could be inner circle work and uh, nature connection practices that's where you'll see it. Thank you so much.
0: Amazing. Thanks, Lindsay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Wait, before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you've heard, please take a moment to hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a written review you can do it right from the app. It takes just a sec and really helps me to be able to continue to share this important information with more people. Plus, you might just get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks so much and bye for now.